everybody, and welcome to the Going Up Gadget Weekly Feel Good Podcast, where this week we start a brand new audiobook adventure. I talk about a new show on Netflix, and I save you all an hour and a half of your time. That's right, this week we begin 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. We have the first three chapters in this week's episode of the Going Up Cast. I just finished recording the third chapter, and I am very happy with uh, with how this audiobook is coming along. I talk about uh, Floor is Lava, which is a new Netflix show that is just fucking so much fun. I'm a big fan of it. Big fan of it. Uh, and then I tell you all uh, to save your time. We're get, we're gonna get to that here in a little bit. It's it won't it won't take long. Um, but it's a it's a new segment. Anyway, uh, let's do a little bit of housekeeping. Number one, uh, episode four of the Nuzlocke Run for Patreon only folks will go up today. I need to edit that at some point today. Today being yesterday. Today for you being today when the podcast goes up. So tomorrow, Tuesday, is when it'll go up. I actually need to just edit the... the, I need to make the video, basically. I've recorded it. I just need to do the rest of it. So that'll happen at some point today. I also got a fancy new stand uh, for for my 3DS. So hopefully the, the, the video quality will be even better because it'll be closer to the camera. Um, so that'll be fun. Uh, yeah, that goes up tomorrow. Uh, we had our monthly live stream last Tuesday for Patreon supporters as well. And now what I'm doing is, um, if you missed the live stream, uh, you can now watch the, the video on demand, um, still on Patreon. So if you miss it, you can still see it. We're, we're doing that as well. So there's videos and there are live stream VODs from all the other live streams. So fantastic. Well, not the ones before this last one. I don't have the VODs for that one, but I had the VOD for this one. So we were able to to do that as well. Um, Eldest is rapidly approaching its conclusion. Um, at the time of recording this, I think there's like maybe three to four chapters left. And then we will be moving on to... I'm going to upload Peter Pan on the daily schedule. Um, I'm committing to that now. Uh, reason being is because I wanted to do something a little bit different with Brissinger. Um, and I want to do two chapters a day with Brissinger. I'm, I'm admitting that now. I would love to be able to pull that off. Um, I think I've mentioned it before. I don't know if I'm actually going to have the opportunity to do that, but in order to give me just a bit more time in order to pull that off, I'm going to do uh, daily uploads of Peter Pan uh, a- a- to act as kind of like a buffer in between um, Eldest and Brissinger. So we, I am working on Brissinger. I've done a couple of the chapters already. The problem is, is that these chapters are significantly longer than Eldest, so it just takes more time. And, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of talking, so there is that. Um, but yeah, uh, Brissinger will, will come along here in due course. Hopefully two chapters a day. We'll get through just a bit faster than we did, um, than we did Eldest. And then we'll get through uh, Inheritance after that, hopefully in the same style as Brissinger with two chapters a day. I don't know if I'll be able to do it. We'll find out together. I'm just letting you guys know that's my, that's my intention is to do two chapters a day. Um, God, my voice is going to be so fucking ragged after this. Uh, side note, I'm doing okay. Uh, the world the world is still exploded, but that's to be expected. I've got a haircut scheduled for like in, in this next little, little bit of time. Uh, my first haircut since this all popped off several months ago. Uh, my hair is pretty shaggy, I think is, a, is an accurate descriptor, and I'm excited to not have it be a thing anymore. I'm excited to have my short hair back because because I miss it. I miss my short hair. Um, I'm also in the process of changing house. 
which is very exciting. I don't have a hard and fast date or location set up just yet, uh, but I have been approved uh, for the, at least the first part of this next apartment. Um, so I will I will keep you guys posted. But I am I'm very excited to to you know have a have a new place of, place of my own my own business. So yeah, that's that's all that's really exciting going on in my neck of the woods. Um, I hope you're all doing well. It's a bit more bit more personal of a, an introduction than uh than I'm used to, used to doing. But I just want to take a second and say that uh, thank you to all the listeners of the podcast. It, it means the world to me. The guys listen to it. I'm really, really excited about Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Um, if you've read the books before or the book before, then I think you know the really exciting adventure we're about to go on. And if you haven't read it before, then I hope my personal level of excitement is infectious, and you guys just get super into it because I think it's going to be really good. Uh, but that's enough of uh, me blithering. Thank you very much for listening. Let's get into the actual podcast now. So begins Brand Spankin' New Adventure. This is a book I've never read. And if you read the episode notes, you know what it is. So I don't know why I'm dancing around the around it's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, written in a long time ago. 1800 when was this book written? 1800s? I'm just gonna Google it real quick. Uh 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. There we go. Was written in night no, that's the film. 1954! That's not public domain. No, the book. The book itself was written in 1870. This one was published in the original French, and then it was translated into English in 1872. It is uh, subtitled A World Tour Underwater. So there you go. I've never read a Jules Verne book, but I have seen many a Jules Verne-based movie, including Journey to the Center of the Earth, Around the World in 80 Days, and that's it. Anyway, part one. A runaway reef. The year 1866 was marked by a bizarre development, an unexplained and downright inexplicable phenomenon that surely no one has forgotten. Without getting into those rumors that upset civilians in the seaports and deranged the public mind even far inland, it must be said that the professional seamen <clears throat> were especially alarmed. Traders, ship owners, captains of vessels, skippers, and master mariners or mariners, from Europe and America, and that's it, naval officers from every country except for Europe and America, and at their heels, the various national governments on these two continents were all extremely disturbed by the business. In essence, over a period of time, several ships had encountered an enormous thing, in quotations, at sea, a long spindly-shaped object sometimes giving off a phosphorescent glow infinitely bigger and faster than any whale. So it's like a big leviathan sea monster. The relevant data on this apparition, as recorded in various logbooks, agreed pretty closely as to the structure of the object or creature in question, its unprecedented speed of movement and its startling locomotive power, the unique vitality with which it seemed to be gifted. If it was a cetacean, um, cetacean, sure, uh, it exceeded in bulk any whale previously classified by science. Nor no naturalist, neither Couvrier nor Las <laughs> Neither Professor Dumuriel nor Professor de Quatrefages, Quatrefages, I don't speak French. Professor de Quatrefages, Fages, Fages, sure, would have accepted the existence of such a monster, sight unseen, specifically unseen by their own scientific eyes. 
striking an average of observations taken at different times, rejecting those timid estimates that gave the object a length of 200 feet and ignoring those exaggerated views that saw it at a mile wide and three long. You could still assert that this phenomenal creature greatly exceeded the dimensions of anything known to ichthyologists if it existed at all. Why specifically ichthyologists? I believe I'm probably going to get scienced out here um, a couple of times. Uh, and apparently this book is supposed to be <coughs> accurate. I don't, I don't know how how accurate that is. But um, ichthyologists is the, is the specific study of fish. And the biggest fish is, you know, the, the uh, fucking... Uh, whale shark. And that's a pretty big fish. I wonder what it would taste like. I don't know. Now then. It did exist. Um. Oh, hold on. Now then, it did exist. This was an undeniable fact. And since the human mind dotes on objects of wonder, you can understand the worldwide excitement caused by this unearthly apparition. Why does he keep calling it? Is it a ghost squid? That'd be cool. As for relegating it to the realms of fiction, that charge had to be dropped. In essence, on July 20th, 1866, the steamer Governor Higson from the Calcutta and Burnack Steam Navigation Company encountered this moving mass five miles off the eastern shore of Australia. Captain Baker at first thought he was in the presence of an unknown reef. He was even about to fix its exact position when two waterspouts shot out of this inexplicable object and sprang hissing into the air some 150 feet. So unless this reef was subject to intermittent eruptions of a geyser, the Governor Higson had far and honest dealings with some aquatic mammals, and un until then unknown that uh, until then unknown that could spurt it from its blowholes waterspouts mixed with air and steam. Similar events were likewise observed in the Pacific Seas on July 23rd of the same year by Christopher Columbus of the West India and Pacific Steam Navigation Company. Consequently, this extraordinary cetacean, 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 cetacean. It's, a, it's the fucking scientific world for whale, I believe. Oh, well. This extraordinary creature could transfer itself from one locality to another with startling swiftness, since within an interval of just three days, the Governor Higson and Christopher Columbus had observed uh, uh, two positions on the chart separated by a distance of more than 700 nautical leagues. One fun fact about this book, or at least this version of the book, is that at the very beginning of the book, it gives me a breakdown on the units of measurement that Jules Verne uses, telling us that a league is like 2.41 miles... I believe, um, which uh, is pretty pretty standard uh, to our understanding of league from leading, reading uh, Aragon, which is the distance a horse can walk on um, in a in a mile, in an hour. I think it is how far a horse can walk in an hour. That's about two to two to three miles. So two point four one, perfectly fine with me. Fifteen days later, and two thousand leagues farther, the Helveta from the Compagnie Nationale. And the Shannon of the Royal Mail Line, running on opposite tracks or tacks in that part of the Atlantic line between the United States and Europe, respectfully signaled each other that a monster had been sighted at latitude forty uh, latitude uh, forty two degrees fifteen degrees north, longitude sixty degrees thirty five feet west, or is it feet? I don't know, of the meridian of Greenwich. From their simultaneous observations, they were able to estimate the mammal's minimum length to be more than three hundred and fifty English feet. This was because both the Shannon and the Helveta were of similar were of smaller dimensions, although each measured 100 meters stern to stem. Uh, now then, the biggest whales, those Rorkel whales that frequently uh, frequented the waterways of the Aleutian Islands, those Rorkel whales? What the fuck is a Rorkel whale? All right, hold on. R O R Q U A L whale. Rorkels. The largest group of baleen whales. Okay, so it's it's just the, the descriptor of, of the whale. And that includes the blue, because the blue whale is a baleen whale. Anyway, 
It's always funny to me that the largest mammals in existence comprised their died upon the smallest creatures in existence. Or not the smallest, but very small creatures. Also, the Aleutian Islands is the name of the chain of islands that spit off of Alaska. That, like, that line of, of islands that kind of stick out. It's the Aleutian Island chains. Have never exceeded a length of 56 meters, even if they, um, if they reach even that. One after another, reports arrived that would profoundly affect public opinion. New observations taken by the transatlantic line, the Inman line, Etna, running afoul of the monster in an official reporting drawn up by officers of the French frigate Normandy. Dead earnest reckonings obtained by the general staff of Commodore Fitzjames aboard the Lord Clyde. Now, um, dead earnest reckonings. Yeah, okay. In lighthearted countries, people joked about this phenomenon, but such serious practical countries as England, America, and Germany were deeply concerned. In every big city, the monster was the latest rage. They sang about it in the coffee houses. They ridiculed it in the newspapers. They dramatized it in the theaters. Tabloids found it a fine opportunity for hatching all sorts of hoaxes. In those newspapers, sort of copy, you saw the reappearance of every gigantic imaginary creature from Moby Dick, that dreadful white whale from the high Arctic regions, to the stupendous kraken, whose tentacles can entwine a 500-ton craft and drag it to the ocean's depths. They even reprinted reports from ancient times, views of Aristotle and Pliny, accepting the narratives of Paul Egad, um, accepting the existence of such monsters. Then the Norwegian stories of Bishop Papatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatapatap
of the Montreal Ocean Company lying during the night in the latitude 27 degrees 30 feet and longitude 72 degrees 15 feet ran its starboard quarter foul of a rock marked on no charts of these waterways under the combined efforts of wind and 400 horsepower steamers traveling at a speed of 13 knots. Without the high quality of its hull, the Morvian surely would have split open from this collision and gone down together with the 237 passengers it was bringing back from Canada. This accident happened around 5 o'clock in the morning. Just as the day was beginning to break, the officers on watch rushed to the craft's stern. They examined the ocean with the most scrupulous care. They saw nothing except a strong eddy breaking three cable lengths out, and if those sheets of water had been, um, as if those sheets of water had been violently churned. The site's exact bearings were taken, and the Moravian uh, continued on course apparently undamaged. Had it run afoul of an underwater rock or the wreckage of some enormous derelict ship, they were unable to say. But when they examined the underside and the surface area, they discovered that part of its keel had been smashed. This occurrence, extremely serious in itself, might have uh, perhaps been forgotten like so many others if three weeks later it hadn't been reenacted under identical conditions. Only thanks to the nationality of the ship victimized by the new ramming, thanks to the reputation of the company to which the ship belonged, the event caused an immense uproar. No one is unaware of the name of that famous English shipowner, Cunard. In 1840, this shrewd industrialist founded a postal service between Liverpool and Halifax, featuring three wooden ships with 400 horsepower paddle wheels and a burden of 1,162 metric tons. He really likes his numbers, doesn't he? Everything is very specifically and meticulously laid out and explained to us, the readers. Eight years later, the company assessed with an increase, or assets were increased by four 650 horsepower ships at 1,820 metric tons, and in two more years by two other vessels of still greater power and tonnage. In 1853, the Cunard Co., whose mail-carrying charter had just been renewed, successfully added to its assets the Arabia, the Persia, the China, the Scotia, the Java, and the Russia. All ships at top speed and, after the Great Eastern, the biggest ever to plow these seas. So in 1867, this company owned 12 ships, 8 with paddle wheels, and 4 with propellers. If I give these highly condensed details, it is so everyone can fully understand the importance of this maritime transportation company, known the world over for its shrewd management. No transoceanic navigational undertaking has been conducted with more ability. No business dealings have ever been crowned with greater success. In 26 years, the Cunard ships have made 2,000 Atlantic crossings without so much as a voyage canceled, a delayed record, a man, a craft, or even a letter lost. Accordingly, despite strong competition from France, passengers still chose the Cunard line in preference to all others, as can be seen in a recent survey of official documents. Given this, no one will be astonished at the uproar provoked by this ancient by this accident involving one of its finest steamers. On April 13, 1867, with a smooth sea and a moderate breeze, the Scotia lay longitude 15 degrees 12 feet, latitude 45 degrees 37 feet. It was traveling at a speed of 13.43 knots under the thrust of its 1,000 horsepower engines. Its paddle wheels were turning the sea with perfect steadiness. It was then drawing 6.7 meters of water and displacing 6,624 cubic meters. At 4.17 in the afternoon, during a high tea for passengers gathered in the main lounge, a collision occurred. Scarcely noticeable on the whole, affecting the Scotia's hull in a quarter a little astern of its poor paddle wheel. The Scotia hadn't run afoul of something. It had been fouled by cutting or perforating instruments rather than a blunt one. This encounter seemed so minor that nobody on board would have been disturbed by it, had it not been for the shouts of the crewmen in the hold, who climbed on the deck yelling, We're sinking! We're sinking! At first, the passengers were quite frightened, but Captain Anderson hastened to reassure them. In fact, there was no immediate danger. Divided into seven compartments by the watertight bulkheads, the Scotia could brave any leak with impunity. Captain Anderson immediately made his way into the hold. He discovered that the fifth compartment had been invaded by the sea, and that the speed of this invasion proved that the leak was considerable. Fortunately, this compartment didn't contain the boilers because their furnaces would have been abruptly extinguished. 
Captain Anderson called in immediately a halt, and one of his sailors dived down to assess the damage. Within moments, they had located two holes in the meter, and with on the steamer's underside, such a leak could, such a leak could not be patched. And with its paddle wheels half swamped, the Scotia had no choice but to continue its voyage. By then, it lay 300 miles from Cape Clear, and after three days of delay that filled Liverpool with acute anxiety, the and uh, it entered the company docks. And the engineers then proceeded to inspect the Scotia, which had to be put in dry dock. They couldn't believe their eyes. Two and a half meters below the waterline, there gaped a symmetrical gash in the shape of an isosceles triangle. This breach in the sheet iron was so perfectly formed, no punch could have done a cleaner job of it. Consequently, it must have been produced by a perforating tool of uncommon toughness. Plus, after being uh, launched with prodigious power and then piercing four sem uh, centimeters of sheet iron, this tool had needed to withdraw itself by back by a backwards motion truly inexplicable. This was the last straw, and it resulted in arousing the public passion all over again. Indeed, from this moment on, any maritime casualty without an established cause was charged to the monster's account. This outrageous animal had to shoulder responsibility for all derelict vessels, whose numbers are unfortunately considerable, since out of those 3,000 ships whose losses are recorded annually at the Maritime Insurance Bureau, the figure for steam or sailing ships supposedly lost by all hands, in the absence of any news, amounted to at least 200. Now then, justly or unjustly, it was the monster who stood accused of their disappearance, and since, thanks to it, travel between the various continents had become more and more dangerous, the public spoke up and demanded straight out that, at all costs, the seas be purged of this fearsome creature. Also, apparently, that word from before with the asterisk next to it is German for the word bulletin. Isn't that exciting? What an interesting start to the, to the book. I think it sets up the fear of this monster well. We have just enough details to know that it's massive, but we're not entirely sure what kind of creature it is. It could be a squid. Could be a creation of uh, Jules Verne's imaginations. Either way, keeps being called a whale simply because whales are the biggest. And therefore, what else could it possibly be? Interesting. I wonder how much this book is actually going to scratch uh, an itch of mine that I had a long time ago when I wanted to be a marine biologist. You know, with the likes of Jacques Cousteau and all those amazing individuals who protect our oceans. Um, and I still have a very strong passion for the ocean. It's just now it is not what I want to do with my life. It's just something I want to be an aspect of my life. So there you go. It's a fun little side story. a new one-time segment that will reoccur as needed which is called don't waste your time the going cast is here to to act as a vessel uh for things that might make you happy or happier or the happiest and i have taken a bullet for us all and i watched the artemis fowl movie and what's the name of this segment that's right it's called don't waste your time it's not a terrible movie it's just not worth your time it's an hour and a half long I wasted an hour and a half of my life watching that movie, so you don't have to. I'm not even going to tell you what the movie's about or why it's bad, because this is a the podcast for happy reasons, and that movie didn't make me happy. So I'm just telling you that if you want to be happy, do something else at that time. Don't waste your time. It's bad. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. The pros and cons. During the period in which these developments were occurring, I had returned from a scientific undertaking organized to explore the Nebraska Badlands in the United States. In my capacity as assistant professor at the Paris Museum of Natural History, I had been attached to this expedition by the French government. 
After spending six months in Nebraska, I'm so sorry. I arrived in New York laden with valuable collections near the end of March. What was in Nebraska? What did he say? Oh, it's scientific undertaking to explore the Nebraska Badlands. So, I guess it was more of like an anthropological study. Uh, yeah. My departure from France was set for early May. In the meantime, then, I was busy classifying my mineralogical, botanical, and zoological treasures that uh, when that incident took place with the Scotia. Nova Scotia. I was perfectly abreast of this question, which was the big news of the day. And how could I have not been? I had read and reread every American and European newspaper without being any further along. This mystery, this mystery puzzled me. Finding it impossible to form any views, I drifted from one extreme to the other. Something was out there, that much was certain, and any doubting Thomas was invited to place his finger on the Scotia's wound. Gross. Doubting Thomas. Why isn't it like a doubting Daryl? Don't these people like alliteration? Tremulous Thomas. When I arrived in New York, the question was at a boiling point. The hypothesis of a drifting islet or an elusive reef put forward by people not quite in their right minds was completely eliminated. And indeed, unless this reef had an engine in its belly, how could it move about with such prodigious speed? Also discredited was the idea of a floating hull or some other enormous wreckage, and again because of its speed of movement. Well, couldn't it be possible that there's more than one of these monsters? If they're talking about its speed, so either this thing has like teleportation powers, or there's more than one of them. So, could be one or the other. I've never read this book, so I don't know if any of my predictions will become accurate, but we'll find out together! Uh, so, only two possible solutions to the questions were left, creating two very distinct groups of supporters. On one side, those favoring a monster of colossal strength, on the other, those favoring an underwater boat of tremendous motor power. Now then, although the latter hypothesis was completely admissible, it couldn't stand up to inquiries conducted in both the New World and the Old. That a private individual had such a mechanism at his disposal was less than probable. Where and when had he built it? And how could he have built it in secret? So is the Nautilus just attacking things? I don't, I don't know. I guess we'll find out. I know roughly... I know elements of the story. Like Captain Nemo and the Nautilus. Um, That's pretty much it. That's kind of that's kind of where my knowledge of this book stops. There's a character named Captain Nemo. He has an underwater submarine called the Nautilus. That's all I got. Only some government could own such an engine of destruction... And in these disaster-filled times when men tax their ingenuity to build increasingly powerful, aggressive weapons, it's possible that, unknown to the rest of the world, some nation could have been testing such a fearsome machine. The chase pot rifle led to the torpedo, and the torpedo led to this underwater battering ram, which in turn will lead to the world to putting its foot down. At least I hope it will. But this hypothesis of a war machine collapsed in the face of formal denials from the various governments. Since the public interest was at stake and transoceanic travel was suffering, the sincerity of these governments could not be doubted. Besides, how could the assembly of this underwater boat have escaped public notice? Keeping a secret under such circumstances would be difficult enough for an individual, and certainly impossible for a nation whose every move is under constant surveillance by its rival powers. So, after inquiries conducted in England, France, Russia, Prussia, Spain, Italy, America, and even Turkey, even Turkey, hypothesis of an underwater monitor was ultimately rejected. And so the monster surfaced again, despite the endless witticisms heaped upon it by the popular press and the human imagination soon caught up with the most ridiculous ideological fantasies. After I arrived in New York, several people did me the honor of consulting me on the phenomenon in question. In France, I had published a two-volume work in Quattro entitled The Mysteries of the Great Ocean Depths. Well received in scholarly circles, this book had established me as a specialist in this pretty obscure field of natural history. My views were, were in demand. As long as I could deny the reality of the business, I confined myself to a flat no comment. 
but soon pinned to the wall, I had to explain myself straight out. In this vein, the Honorable Pierre Aronax, professor at the Paris Museum, was summoned by the New York Herald to formulate his views, no matter what. I complied. Since I could no longer hold my tongue, I let it wag. I discussed the question in every aspect, both political and scientific, and in an excerpt from the well-padded article I published in the issue of April 30th. Therefore, right, after examining these different hypotheses one by one, we are forced every other supposition having been refuted to accept the existence of an extremely powerful marine animal. The deepest parts of the ocean are totally unknown to us. No surroundings have been able to reach them. No soundings have been able to reach them. What goes on in those distant depths? What creatures inhabit or could inhabit those regions 12 or 15 miles beneath the surface of the water? What is the constitution of these animals? It is almost beyond conjecture. However, the solution to this problem submitted to me can take the form of a choice between two alternatives. Either we know every variety of creature populating this planet, or we do not. If we do not know every one of them, if nature keeps its ichthyological secrets from us, nothing is more admissible than to accept the existence of fish or cetaceans of new species or even new genera. Animals with a basically cast iron constitution that inhabit strata beyond the reach of our surroundings, and which some develop, or uh, in which some development, or rather, an urge or a whim, if you prefer, can bring up the upper level of the ocean for long intervals. If, on the other hand, we do know of every living species, we must look for an animal in question among those marine creatures already catalogued. In this event, I would be inclined to accept the existence of a giant narwhal. The common narwhal, or sea unicorn, as nitwits call it, often reaches a length of 60 feet. 60 feet? No. That, no. They're like, they're like 30 feet. They're like beluga whales. Uh, how big can a narwhal grow? 17 feet. 17 fucking feet. 60 feet. Often reaches lengths of 60 feet. Fuck you. That including the tusk? <laughs> I don't know. But no. Fucking like 17 to... Yeah. Males reach between 4 to 6 meters. That's 13 to 20 feet. Either that's a translation error or they did not know what the fuck a narwhal was back in the 1800s. So. The common narwhal of sea unicorn often reaches a length of 12 feet. Increase its dimensions fivefold or even tenfold, and then give this cetacean the strength in proportion to its size when enlarging its offensive weapons, and you have the animal we're looking for. It would have the proportions determined by the officer of the shannon, the instrument needed to perforate the scotia, and thus the power to pierce a steamer's hull. In essence, the narwhal is armed with a sort of ivory sword or lance, as certain naturalists have expressed it. It is a king-sized tooth as hard as steel. Some of these teeth have been found buried in the bodies of baleen whales, which the narwhal attacks with invariable success. Others have been wrenched, not without difficulty, from the undersides of vessels that narwhals have pierced clean through, as a gimlet pierces a wine barrel. The Museum of the Faculty of Medicine in Paris owns one of these tusks with a length of 2.25 meters, and the width out of its base is 48 centimeters. That's absurd. 48 centimeters? That's like, it's like a fucking tree trunk, isn't it? 48 centimeters, two inches. That's 18 inches across, it's like a foot and a half. No fucking way. No fucking way. That, no. 
This thing's like, this thing's like a couple of inches around max. And it's not a foot and a half across. That's a horseshit. It's a tooth. That narwhal wouldn't be able to swim. This thing would be enormous. It's like having a fucking log staple to your face. Anyway. All right, then. Imagine this weapon to be 10 times stronger and the animal 10 times more powerful. And launch it at a speed of 20 miles per hour. Multiply its mass by velocity and you get the collision we need to cause the specified catastrophe. So until information becomes more abundant, I plump for a sea unicorn of colossal dimensions, no longer armed with a mere lance, but with an actual spur like ironclad frigates on those warships called rams, whose mass and motor would, it would possess simultaneously. This inexplicable phenomenon is thus explained away, unless it's something else entirely, which despite everything that has been cited, studied, and explored, and experienced, is still possible. These last words were cowardly of me, but as far as I could, I wanted to protect my professional, professional dignity, and not lay myself open to laughter from the Americans, who, when they do laugh, laugh raucously. That is true. I had left myself a loophole. Yet deep down, I had accepted the existence of the monster. <laughs> My article was highly debated, causing a fine uproar. It rallied a number of supporters. Moreover, the solution it proposed allowed for free play of the imagination. The human mind enjoys impressive visions of unearthly creatures. Now then, the sea is precisely their best medium, the only setting, setting suitable for the breeding and growing of such giants, next to which support such land animals as elephants or rhinoceros are mere dwarves. The liquid masses support the largest known species of mammals and perhaps conceal mo uh, mollusks of incomparable size or crustaceans too frightful to contemplate, such as a 100-meter lobster or crab weighing 200 metric tons. Why not? Formerly, in prehistoric days, land animals, quadrupeds, apes, reptiles, and birds were built on a gigantic scale. Our creator cast them using a colossal mold that, in, that time has gradually made smaller. With its untold depths, couldn't the sea keep alive such huge specimens of life from another age? The sea that never changes while the landmasses undergo almost continuous alterations? Couldn't the heart of the ocean hide the last remaining varieties of these titanic species from whom years and centuries in, uh, uh from, from, uh, for whom years are centuries and centuries millennia? Interesting. I mean, he's not wrong. The beauty of the idea of a 100-meter lobster is not too far-fetched, and here's why. One, lobsters are factually immortal. Unless you kill them or eat them or they die of something else, they will just continue to grow and exist in perpetuity. So here is the theory. As soon as that lobster gets too big to crawl inside the lobster cage, we will never know about its existence. So there very well could be e-fucking-normous lobsters at the bottom of the ocean. Crawling around. Just absolute behemoths of lobsters that have been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years. They could be down there. And that's the beauty of a story like this, or any story, really, that deals with the, the monsters of the depths. Because Jules is right. We don't know anything about the bottom of the ocean. We know more than we did back then. But it's still so vast and so unknown to us. And the real exciting beauty of it is, because it's the ocean, even if we go to one spot in the ocean and we look around and we don't find anything, that is nothing to say that like maybe two miles north of us or immediately right behind us, there is something right there that would just blow all of our collective minds. And stories of sea monsters have existed for pretty much as long as there have been stories. You know, as long as we have been traveling the seas, sea monsters have have come into the cultural sphere. 
It's kind of like the existence of dragons existing in multiple different cultures all over the globe that did not communicate with one another. This idea of a fire-breathing lizard exists in, like, Chinese lore, uh, like, in Aztec lore, in Native American folklore, uh, the Nords had it, the aboriginals of Australia had it, like, everybody had this idea of a fire-breathing lizard. It, it comes in different shapes and sizes, but we all collectively came up with it together. And this is where you could argue the transcendentalist theory of collective human consciousness meaning that when one person thinks of an idea somebody somewhere else in the world has the exact same idea at the exact same time and we're all just kind of in the zeitgeist of uh human collective hive mind sphere uh which is an intriguing idea and there's a lot of transcendentalist writers like walden and all that stuff that deal with the compassion of other pieces of humanity and the hippie movement of the 60s um and i do like that kind of idea i think i think it makes a lot of sense it's the same idea of like why no idea is original you know because somebody else thought of it but just because somebody else thought of it doesn't mean it's a bad idea or that you should discount it you know so when we're talking about sea monsters you could look at it like we have that kind of connection or the other side of the coin if we don't have this hive mind and we are all singularly unique thinkers then that furthers the proof of these monsters existing because if we don't all think of the idea at the same time because of a transcendentalist mindset, but because we all just saw that shit, and then there you go. These fucking things actually do exist. And the beauty of its size, and it's, we'll just never really know. And it's that uncertainty that breeds these monsters, you know? We can't utterly say one way or the other if these things exist, if they did exist, if they do exist, we don't know. And that's the beauty of it. We just don't fucking know. It's the same reason why Lovecraft shit is scary. Cosmic horror, you know? It is It is all about what you can't see. Or what's just on the edge of your vision. I mean, the second you can't see the bottom of a body of water is when your imagination starts to run wild. Because anything could be down there. That was quite a little speech I just gave. I'm very sorry. Um interesting anyway uh where was i but i mustn't let these fantasies run away with me well i just ran away with the fantasies all on my own so thanks jules enough of these fairy tales that time has changed for me into harsh realities i repeat opinion has crystallized as to the nature of this phenomenon and the public accepted without argument the existence of a prodigious creature that had nothing in common with the fabled sea serpent Yet, if some saw it purely as a scientific problem to be solved, more practical people, especially in American England, were determined to purge the ocean of this daunting monster to ensure the safety of transoceanic travel. The industrial and commercial newspapers dealt with the question chiefly from this viewpoint. The Shipping and Mercantile Gazette, the Lloyd's List, Francis Packet Boats and Maritime and Colonial Review, all the rags devoted to insurance companies who threatened to raise their premium rates, were unanimous on this point. Public opinion being pronounced, the State of the Union were the first in the field, and the New York preparations were underway for an expedition designed to chase this narwhal. A high-speed frigate, the Abraham Lincoln, was fitted out uh, for putting to sea as soon as possible. The naval arsenals were unlocked by Commander Farragut, yeah, who pressed energetically forward with the arming of his frigate. But, as it always happens... Just when a decision has been made to chase the monster, the monster put in no further appearances. For two months, nobody heard a word about it. Not a single ship encountered it. Apparently, the unicorn had gotten wise to these plots being woven around it. People were constantly babbling about the creature. 
even via the Atlantic Cable. Accordingly, the WAGs, uh, the WAGs claimed that this slippery rascal had waylaid some passing telegram and was making the most of it. So the frigate was equipped for a far-off voyage and armed with fearsome fishing gear, but nobody knew where to steer it. And impatience grew until June 2nd. Word came that the Tem um, Tempico, a steamer on the San Francisco line sailing from California to Shanghai, had sighted the animal again three weeks before its northerly seas of the Pacific. Before in its northerly sea of the Pacific. This news caused intense excitement. Not even a 24-hour breather was granted to Commander Farragut. His provisions were loaded on board. His coal bunkers were overflowing. Not a crewman was missing from his post. To cast off, he needed only to fire and stoke his furnaces. Half a day's delay would have been unforgivable, but Commander Farragut wanted nothing more than to go forth. I received a letter three hours before the Abraham Lincoln left its Brooklyn pier. The letter reads as follows. Pierre Ellenox, professor at the Paris Museum, 5th Avenue Hotel, New York. Sir, if you would like to join the expedition on the Abraham Lincoln, the government of the Union would be pleased to regard you as France's representative in this undertaking. Commander Farragut has a cabin at your disposal. Very cordially, yours, J.B. Hobson, Secretary of the Navy. Um, what the fuck? So there was there was an asterisk uh, next to the word pier, where it says Brooklyn Pier, and I felt the need to explain what a pier is, which says here, author's note, a pier is a type of wharf expressly set aside for an individual vessel. Thanks, Vern! I didn't know what a pier was! You're a good, you're a good author. Good job. Thanks for, thanks for laying the law down on that one. This book's really good so far. I like this, I like this better than, um, uh, oh god, what was the other book? Like, Treasure Island? was very much a book about it like it was very conversational in how Treasure Island was read, right? And that one had a pretty decent way of kind of setting the story, I would say, but there were definitely times of Treasure Island where it wasn't 100% certain kind of what you were picturing. I feel like in this book I I haven't struggled to imagine any of these scenarios. Things like what Pierre looks like are not nearly as important as like what Pierre is about. You know what I mean? Um, the, the the character's appearance does not matter as much as the character's character. So, I'm enjoying it. I am very much enjoying it. And I love a good sea monster story. Now, it probably is the Nautilus attacking these boats, and it isn't a monster. But I know there's monsters in this book, so I'm confused. talk about a brand new show that landed on Netflix that is the quintessential show for pretty much any child ever who leapt from their couch to the ottoman to the other couch because you could not touch the floor because the floor was made out of fucking lava. And that show is called Floor is Lava. It's the closest show I've seen to like Legend of the Hidden Temple since Legend of the Hidden Temple. And I've been waiting for a remake of Legend of the Hidden Temple for fucking ever. And I think this just might do it. One thing that I think sets this show apart from um you know, like Ninja Warrior, or the Titan games, or games of actual skill with, you know, impressive backstories, is that this is more or less just a bunch of people falling into lava. Um, or in this case, red-colored water, uh, which is much uh, more fiscally responsible and doesn't actually revolve people dying. But each each room, right? Sorry, I'm just, I just had breakfast. Each room has multiple different paths for you to traverse. Uh, you can go any of those paths. You can kind of figure it out as you go. Each team uh, that finishes the course gets a point. Team with the most points wins $10,000. Uh, it's a pretty simple 
pretty simple structure but there's also like a puzzle element to some of them like if you go this path it looks harder but you also get this reward that'll help you get to the end quicker you know and it's it's fun because it's almost like a fucking video game and there is indeed a video game based on this premise of like the floor is lava i can't remember what it's called off the top of my head but it's fantastic and i love it um so yeah that show is actually really good and really fun um and people make dumb mistakes you, you sit there and be like i wouldn't have fallen there but you probably would have because you're, you're scared it's hot the floor is made out of lava you don't know what to do um yeah, I think it's a I think it's a good dumb show to watch, and everybody needs a good dumb show to watch. So check out the Floor is Lava Netflix, not sponsored. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Chapter three, as Master wishes, as Master wishes. Three seconds. Before the arrival of J.B. Hobson's letter, I no more dreamed of chasing the unicorn than trying for the Northwest Passage, which does technically exist. For like two weeks out of the year after the snow melts, there is a connection of rivers and lakes and streams from the western coast of Canada to the eastern coast of Canada that can technically be navigated, but only at a very, 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 very specific window, which makes it virtually useless to, like, commercial shipping. The Northwest Passage does exist. You just have to know where to look. And when to be there. It's basically a fool's errand. So, yeah. Maybe one day I'll kayak it. That'd be fun. I'm going to kayak 3,000 miles along the Northwest Passage. It's camping my kayak. Three seconds after reading this letter from the Honorable Secretary of the Navy, I understood at last that my true vocation, my sole purpose in life, was to hunt down this disturbing monster and rid the world of it. Even so, I had just returned from an arduous journey, exhausted and badly needing a rest. I wanted nothing more than to see my country again, my friends, my modest quarters by the botanical gardens, my dearly beloved collections. But now nothing could hold me back. I forgot everything else, and without another thought of exhaustion, friends, or collections, I accepted the American government's offer. Besides, I mused, all roads lead home to Europe, and all unicorn may be gracious enough to take me toward the coast of France. That fine animal may even let itself be captured in European seas as a personal favor to me, and I'll bring it back to the Museum of Natural History for at least a, uh, at least half a meter of its ivory lance. But in the meantime, I would have to look for this narwhal in the northern Pacific Ocean, which meant returning to France by way of the Antipodes. Castle! I called in an impatient voice. Castle was my manservant, a devoted lad who went with me on all my journeys, a gallant Flemish boy whom I genuinely liked and returned the compliment. A born stoic, punctilious on principle, habitually hardworking, rarely startled by life's surprises, very skillful with his hands, efficient in every duty, despite having his name, um, despite his having name, that means counsel, never giving advice, not even the unsolicited kind. From rubbing shoulders with scientists in our little universe by the panicle gardens, the boy had come to know a thing or two. In council, I had a seasoned specialist in biological classifications and enthusiast who could run the acrobatic agility, um, yeah. Acrobatic agility up and down the whole ladder of branches, groups, classes, subclasses, orders, families, genera, subgenera, species, and varieties. But there his science came to a halt. Classifying was everything to him, and he knew nothing else. Well versed in the theory of classification, he was poorly versed in the practical application, and I doubt he could tell a sperm whale from a baleen whale. Yet what a fine, gallant lad. For the past ten years, Council had gone with me whenever science beckoned. Not once did he comment on the length or the hardship of journey. Never did he object to buckling up his suitcase for any country whatsoever, China or the Congo, no matter how off, far off it was. Here, uh, he went here, there, and everywhere in perfect contentment. Moreover, he enjoyed excellent health that defied all ailments 
owned solid muscles, but I hadn't a nerve in him, not a sign of nerves. The mental type, I mean. The lad was 30 years old, and his age to that of his employer was as 15 is to 20. So you are 35. Please forgive me for this underhanded way of admitting I had turned 40. Well, then the math doesn't fucking work out, does it? His age to that of his employer was as to 15 is to 20. It's a five-year difference. And then you come around and you say you're 40, which means you're 10 years older. It would have been as 10 is to 20. You dumbass. It doesn't scale. stays the same. Unless you're talking about half ages. 15 is to 20. Multiply both of those by 2. 30 to 40. I think that's what he's going about there. Um, yes, that's fine. But, Cancel had one flaw. He was a fanatic on formality, and he only addressed me in the third person, to the point where it got tiresome. Cancel! I repeated, while feverishly beginning my preparations for departure. To be sure, I had the confidence in this devoted lad. Ordinarily, I never asked whether or not it suited him to go with me on my journeys, but this time, an expedition was at issue that could drag on indefinitely. A hazardous undertaking whose purpose was to hunt an animal that could sink a frigate as easily as a walnut shell. There was good reason to stop and think, even for the world's most emotionless man. What would Council say? Council! I called a third time. Council appeared. Did Master summon me? He said, entering. Yes, my boy, get things ready. Get yours ready. We are departing in two hours. As Master wishes! Council replied serenely. I have a moment to lose. Pack as much into my trunk as you can. My traveling kit, my suits, my shirts, my socks. Don't bother counting. Just squeeze it all in and hurry. What about Master's collections? Council ventured to observe. We'll deal with them later. What? The Erogonothurnium, Hydrosothurnium, Ordenauts, Chiptotopodus, and Master's other fossil skeletons? The hotel will keep them for us. What about Master's live Barbarossa? They'll feed it during our absence. Anyhow, we'll leave the instructions to the ship the whole menagerie of France. Then we are returning to Paris? Council asked. Yes, we are. Certainly, I replied evasively. But after we make a detour. Whatever detour Master wishes! Oh, it's nothing really. A, a route detour less direct, that's all. We're leaving on the Abraham Lincoln. As Master thinks best, Council said placidly. You see, my friend, it is an issue of the monster, the notorious narwhal. We're going to rid it of the seas of it. The author of a two-volume work in Quattro on the mysteries of the great ocean depths has no excuse for not setting sail with Commander Farragut. In this glorious mission, but also a dangerous one, we don't know where it will take us. These beasts can be quite unpredictable, but we're going just the same. We have a commander who's game for anything. Whatever master does, I'll do, Council replied. But think it over, because I don't want to hide anything from you. This is one of those voyages from which people don't always come back. As master wishes. A quarter of an hour later, trunks were ready. Council did them in a flash, and I was sure the lad hadn't missed a thing, because he classified shirts and suits as expertly as birds and mammals. The hotel elevator dropped us off in the main vestibule of the mezzanine. I went down a short stair leading to the ground floor. I settled my bill at that huge counter that was always under siege by a considerable crowd. I left instructions for my ship for shipping my containers of stuffed animals and dried plants to Paris, France. I opened a line of credit sufficient to cover the Barbarossa and Council at my heels jumped into a carriage. For a fare of 20 francs, the vehicle went down Broadway to Union Square, took the 4th Avenue to its junction at Bowery Street, turned into Catrin Street, and halted at Pier 43. There, the Catrin Ferry transferred men, horses, and carriage to Brooklyn, that great New York annex located on the left bank of the East River. And in a few minutes, we arrived to the wharf next to which the Abraham Lincoln was vomiting torrents of black smoke from its two funnels. While our baggage was immediately carried to the deck of the frigate, I rushed aboard, asked for Commander Farragut. One of the sailors led me to the after dock, after deck. Yeah, sure. Where I stood in the presence of a smart-looking officer who extended his hands to me. 
Um, oh, I guess he's American, so Professor Pierre Aranax, he commanded me. I'll give him, I'll, I'll make him uh, Warburton, that'll be fine. The same. All right, Commander Farragut, in person. Welcome aboard, Professor. Cabin is, uh, it's waiting for you. It's right over there. Gotta get settled. Meet me for an evening smoke and drink. I bowed, letting Commander attend to getting underway while I was taken to the cabin he had set aside for me. And fucking Cowsell slept in a barrel outside. <laughs> the Amber Lincoln had been perfectly chosen and fitted in it for its new assignment. It was a high-speed frigate furnished with superheating equipment that allowed the tension of its steam to build to seven atmospheres. Under this pressure, the Abraham Lincoln could reach an average speed of 18.3 miles per hour, a considerable speed, but still not enough to cope with our gigantic whale. The frigate's interior accommodations complemented its nautical virtues. I was well satisfied with my cabin, which was located in the stern and opened into the officer's mess. We'll be quite comfortable in here, I told Council. With all due respect, master, Council replied, as comfortable as a hermit crab inside the shell of a whale. I owe Council to the proper storing of our luggage and climbed on deck to watch the preparations getting underway. Just then, Commander Farragut was giving orders to cast off the last moorings holding the Abraham Lincoln to the Brooklyn Pier. And so, if I had been delayed by a quarter of an hour or even less, the frigate would have gone without me. And I would have missed out on this unearthly, extraordinary, inconceivable expedition whose true story might well meet with some skepticism. But Commander Farragut did not want to waste a single day or even a single hour in making for the seas where the animal had just been sighted. He summoned his engineer. So this motherfucker is heading to the Pacific Ocean, which is on the other side of the country, and he's leaving from New York. So he needs to sail through... I'm not even sure it exists at this point of time. The Panama Canal, the Suez Canal. He's got to go through a he's got to go through a canal. Otherwise, he's going around the Horn. Uh, well, not the Horn of Africa, but he's going around fucking Tierra del Fuego, and that's gonna take like all fucking year. By which time that creature's gonna have fucking moved. So this is stupid. That's I don't know. You're never gonna get there in time to meet it at the, at the place where it was spotted three weeks ago. When you heard the news, it was too late. It's kind of straight up. Anyway. Do, 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 do. He summoned his engineer. Are we up to pressure? He asked the man. All I said? The engineer replied. Go ahead then. Commander Farragut called. At this order, we, which was relayed to the engines by means of compressed air devices, the mechanics activated... Okay. Um, I've got a haircut in a little bit. I was just making sure I'm not running late. I'm good. I need to leave in like... Half an hour. Anyway. The mechanics activated the startup wheel. Steam rushed whistling into the gaping valves. Long her horizontal pistons groaned to push the tide rods into the drive shaft. The blades of the propellers churned the waves with increasing speed, and the Abraham Lincoln moved out majestically amid a specter-laden escort of some 100 ferries and tenders, which is a tiny ship. The wharves of Brooklyn and every part of New York boarding the East River were crowded with curiosity seekers. Departing from 500,000 throats, three cheers burst forth in succession. Thousands of handkerchiefs were waving above these tightly packed masses, hailing the Abraham Lincoln until it reached the waters of the Hudson River at the tip of the long peninsula that formed New York City. The frigate then went along the New Jersey coast, the wonderful right bank of this river, all loaded down with country homes, passed by the forts to salutes from their biggest cannons. The Amber Lincoln replied by three times lowering and hoisting the American flag, whose 39 stars gleamed from the gaff of the mizzen sail, then changing speed to take the buoy-marked channel that curved into the inner bay formed by the spit of Sandy Hook. It, tugged, it hugged this sand-covered uh, sand strip of land where thousands of spectators acclaimed one, uh, us one more time. The escorts of boats and tenders still followed the frigate, and only left us when we came abreast of the lightship, whose two signals marked the entrance of the Narrows to the upper New York Bay. Three o'clock then sounded. The harbor pilot went down into his dinghy and rejoined a looter schooner waiting for him leeward. The furnaces were stoked. The propeller churned the waves more swiftly. The frigate skirted the flat yellow coast of Long Island. 
At 8 o'clock in the evening, after the lights of the Fire Island had vanished into the northwest, we ran full steam into the dark waters of the Atlantic. Authors note, tenders are small steamboats that assist the big liners. Thanks, Jules! Y'all was always there to fill in those blanks for me. I think that'll do it for this week. I wanted to thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode of the Going Up Cast. Um, please support the Going Up Cast on patreon.com forward slash going up cast if you want. Uh, you can see all the exciting Pokemon Nuzlocke episodes. You can see all the all the VODs, or at least this last VOD of the of the live stream. Um, I don't know what next live stream is gonna be like. I might just honestly just start reading books live. Um and and just see how that goes. Uh and do also like the QA stuff and talk to y'all um we'll see we'll play it by ear play it by ear it, it isn't until july anyway so we gotta we got some time um but yeah i hope you enjoyed Twenty Thousand leagues into the sea don't watch artemis foul it's not fucking worth it check out the floor is lava on netflix i think that's pretty good and that it will do it for this week hope you all stay safe out there the world's still exploding but we'll get through it together it's only a matter of time before they get that world exploding vaccine and then we're all set and everything's fine. Have a good one, everyone.